thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. I'm so glad you've joined me for today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I'm thankful that you would take time to listen to this podcast. I know there are many, many podcasts out there, many that are very good, and I'm honored and blessed that you would take time to listen to this podcast, and I pray it is a blessing to you, and especially today as we look at what I will call faith-filled, not faithful, faith-filled politics, which of course should be faithful to the gospel. And last week I ended with saying there is one law, the faithful person in politics or in government, in policy, needs to understand and live by, and that is the law of faith. And that's the way it has always been, according to the scripture. Um, Abraham was was saved. Righteousness was reckoned to him by faith. Habakkuk 2 makes it very clear that the righteous shall live by faith. And of course, that mantra is picked up in the New Testament. So what does politics, according to the law of faith, look like? That's what I want to talk about today. And I want to talk about it in two contexts, and I hope I can get through both of them today because they will demonstrate in a practical way what's been going on in my head. Now, the first scenario is, um, it comes from a tweet that I received this week from a person that's uh, on staff at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He writes for the Gospel Coalition. He's a fellow with the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. And, and I'm going to read to you uh, his tweet, then give you a brief update on last week's episode about the Enlightenment, the climate of opinion that was contending against the Reformation theology that had begun with Martin Luther and the Enlightenment's reliance on reason. And you may remember that I brought up John Locke being the one who opened the door to the possibility that we could create a righteous society by man's reason. So here's the tweet. It's always an interesting question of theory to ask, how would you know when you live in a tyrannical regime? Well, that is no longer hypothetical based on what's about to become law in California. And he's referring there to the fact that um, there's going to be a transgender appreciation month, you know, just like we have Pride Month or Black History Month. California's government is an authoritarian regime that is wicked, unjust, and worthy of the highest rebuke. Now, here's a sentence that I want us to particularly focus on. These legislators are traitors to reason, decency, and creation order. California's Democratic legislators are tyrants. Now, I I tweeted back through fact that actually in 1938, in the Erie Railroad versus Tompkins decision, 
the United States Supreme Court said that there is no transcendent authority for law, and the only authority is that of the state. So uh, this writer has missed the bit of history that that switched the common law from a law that exists independent of legislative bodies in the Supreme Court to the idea that the only law that exists is by the authority of the state. That's from the Supreme Court. And so we all live in a state of tyranny. California just happens to be a bit more extreme at this point than other states. But in principle, it's all tyranny. But that's not my focus. I just want to call that to your attention. His point was about reason. And you'll recall that last week we said reliance on reason was the fundamental premise of the Enlightenment. But things changed. Now, in the foreword to the most recent publication, the second edition of Carl Becker's book, The Heavenly City of the 18th Century Philosophers, that I read from last week, the writer now is saying this. He says, the Enlightenment and its values have become very difficult to sustain. For one reason above all, the emergence of a potent new critique of the Enlightenment by the hands of philosophers and theorists associated with postmodernism. And here's the critique. From the standpoint of postmodernity, the Enlightenment was guilty of two profound intellectual errors. This is what shot the Enlightenment down. If we don't understand that we don't live in an Enlightenment cosmology anymore, but in a postmodern one, we won't know how to uh, know what to do, like Sons of Iskar, right? And he says, here's what the postmodernists said the Enlightenment was guilty of. First, the search for absolute, quote, foundations of thought invariably to be found in naturalisms of one kind or another. In other words, they're saying you thought there was a foundation for knowledge grounded in reason that rests on a given nature of things. So you see what this tweeter is saying who's helping lead in our cemeteries and in major organizations is we need to return to reason. But reason only operates when based on a premise. It's, it's presuppositional thinking. And, and what has happened as we've moved on is eventually the postmodernist says, if evolution is true, then there is no given nature. There are no naturalisms from which to reason. And then he said the second error is giving credence in grand narratives of progress or emancipation. In other words, again, evolution gives us no grand narrative. There is no formal cause in the beginning, such as God and the eternal decree of God, and therefore there can be no final cause or telos under evolutionary thinking. And so Enlightenment man was really proceeding on a Christian premise that now has been so totally debunked that going back to reason 
is, is essentially saying we want to return to the Enlightenment days, which is a foolhardy thing since the Enlightenment gave us non-reason, or as Francis Schaeffer put it, an escape from reason. We live in an unreasonable, irrational world. And so when we're trying to make reason of it, we have to understand that reason rests upon certain givens for the Christian. It's in God who created ex nihilo to reveal himself, or it's in some kind of naturalism that can't have a nature if there's no God to give it a nature. It's just stuff that we can measure and manipulate, and that's transgenderism. So, so this is not faithful politics. It's enlightenment politics under the guise of Christianity. So it's not according to the law of faith, but by the law of reason based upon a presumed nature that the world says doesn't exist. Which is why Paul began his apologetic with the reasoned philosophers of his day with, it's in him you live and move and have your being. Until that point was established, there could be no critique of the Epicureans and the Stoics no critique of postmodernism and no critique of the Enlightenment. Okay, so that's the first example. In sum, friend, with respect to this first example, I think what, what you would call this is being winsome. And I guess it's winsome because God is not relevant to it. It's just really reason. Now, he does throw in at the end creation, but we have reasonable people that believe in evolution, right? Creation is something we hold in faith. Read Hebrews chapter 11. It doesn't mean that creation is unreasonable, but to believe in the creation the Christian believes in is not grounded in reason, but in revelation. This idea that we need to be winsome, I think comes from the fact that we see the gospel now as, as trying to not make people mad or uncomfortable. And, and, and getting people mad or uncomfortable has become a gospel-centered no-no, right? You, you, you can't do that. You, you won't bring people to Christ as if we're going to bring somebody to Christ in the first place, not Christ bring people to himself. It's not a gospel-centered approach in reality. It's a man-centered approach. And that's not faith-filled politics. It really relies on reason, not the power of God. Now, let's go to the second example that I was involved with. And let me give you the scenario. After the Supreme Court's Obergefell versus Hodges decision in 2015, if you're not familiar with it, it's perhaps the most significant Supreme Court decision in the history of our nation. But it was the decision that said that liberty is the right to define and express our identity, and therefore the government cannot attribute to man and woman a nature or to marriage a reality that's not created 
by two individuals. Now, why it'll remain two individuals if it does, I don't know. But, but in essence, that's what they said. We create reality. So if same-sex marriage doesn't seem reasonable to you, well, you're thinking under an Enlightenment theology, not the one that now governs the United States Supreme Court and our country. You're living in the wrong cosmology. We've moved on from the Enlightenment to the irrationality of postmodernism. And if you don't understand the times, you won't know what to do. And that's exactly what happened at a meeting I attended in October of 2015, a few months after the decision that June. It was held at a Christian policy organization, perhaps the, the largest in the country, with perhaps the largest uh, legal uh, t organization in the country from a Christian perspective. It was held with Christian leaders like me from all around the country. And, and the goal was how do we respond, or the topic was how, how are we going to respond to Obergefell. So I was looking forward to what laws are you going to propose to us, legislative proposals, that we can use to begin to challenge or address this ruling and its denial of any given nature to things. Well, I was shocked that after two days, the response was capitulate. Now, that's a strong word. But not one moment was given to discussing what might be done to reverse that decision and restore the cosmology that it had finally repudiated completely. That there's a God, a transcendent authority, or that there's any given nature as a result of that. The thing that's surprising to me is no one in that room would have denied that marriage is a creational ordinance. No one in that room would have denied that we are made male and female by God in a manner to reflect his image. And part of his image is that God is generative. The Father has generated the Son from all eternity. So to bear his image, we would be generative ourselves or reproductive. We would bring life out of our lives together. But when you capitulate, you see, you're actually denying that those realities are really real. They don't have any bearing on society. You can ignore these creational ordinances, these creational realities, and they're not going to have a societal effect. Now, if you don't believe in the God of the Bible, that's a perfect response. But if you do, capitulation is not a gospel approach. It's not a faith-filled approach to an historic jurisprudential changing decision by the United States Supreme Court. Now, the second response was actually mine. I left that meeting thinking, well, I'm going to go home and figure out what kind of law we could pass that would restore this idea of marriage as a, as a reality that exists independent of anything the Supreme Court or the legislature says, that it's rooted in the existence of man and a woman in a covenant and the man and the woman holding offices under God of corresponding responsibilities. I, I got to figure out a law to begin to reestablish what's been lost, you see. So, so that was a 
I would submit a righteous objective. It was not capitulation. But was it a faith-filled response? Here's what I mean by that. And I'm going to contrast these two responses to something that I found in Luke 18 a few weeks ago that really struck home with me. It's the story of the importunate widow. And let me read a portion of it to you. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Now he, referring to Jesus, was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. So Luke is telling us what the purpose of this parable is. And then he tells it. There was a certain city, a judge, who did not fear God and did not respect man. Well, there's our Supreme Court, right? There are the people who, in the name of Christianity, don't appear to be fearing God and respecting man as the image of God and God's creational ordinances by capitulating and thinking there will be no consequences and that God will not bring about through those consequences his own righteous judgment on a reprobate people, right? So, so there's that judge. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. Now, it's important that she's a widow, and it, and it is she that comes. She did not even have a kinsman-redeemer kind of person, as we read about in Ruth, who was coming on her behalf or with her. She was all by herself. The parable continues, And for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said in, to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, nothing changed about this guy, right? Yet, because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming, she wear me out. Now, that is not a parable about lobbying and citizen engagement and getting the most emails and the most phone calls and the most texts and the biggest crowd down at the legislature. That's not what this parable is about, right? It's about that we ought to at all times pray and not lose heart. Then the Lord says this, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, here comes the application, Shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? If you would go lobby the Capitol like crazy, email, text, show up, hold rallies, hold protests, to persuade the unrighteous judge. What if you went to your father, who when his children asked for him bread, says, I will never give you a stone, or who want a fish would ever give him a serpent? Look, I want to avenge myself on my foes. I want to uphold the cries of the elect. But here's how the story ends. I tell you, he will bring about justice for them speedily. Well, it doesn't seem to be very speedily right now, does it? And, and of course, we need to look from God's perspective about time. But he adds this final hammer to the story. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? 
Now, one of the things that's interesting about that is even the great Herman Bobnick, a theologian I greatly respect, cites that verse as evidence that at the end times there's just not going to be many Christians. But the parable is not about eschatology, is it? It's about how do we live by faith, which is the law of faith. And here, I think, would have been the proper first political activity had we understood the gospel, the climate of men being confined and shut up to sin and hostile towards God, and in a climate of non-reason, we would have gathered to pray. We would have besieged heaven just like the apostles did when they were beaten and they came back and they said, Hey, Lord, you're the creator of heaven and earth. Look down on all this. Look down on all all this is happening according to your purpose. And give us boldness. It is then that I should have proceeded to look for that law. Saying, in faith, God, I believe you will give it to me. And he's been gracious, despite my faithfulness, to give this idea of the Marital Contract Recording Act and to bring people together who would support it. Though not many, there are some. He's been faithful even though I was faithless, which is what also the scripture says, because he must be faithful to himself. You see, one of the problems that I have that I think afflicts Christians in politics is we think there is a law that can impart righteousness. That's just like the Jews whose religiosity grounded in law as if law could impart life were wiped out. Their temple was gone. Their means of worship were wiped out because there was something that went beyond just passing laws to prohibit things. And see, my friends, that's mostly what I see our side trying to do. Something happens and we think we need a law to prohibit that. We need a law to prohibit that. We define the good in terms of prohibitions, not something beyond the prohibitions. As I heard Sinclair Ferguson say, God gave us prohibitions because as a child, those are the easiest instructions to understand. But if our righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees, then we're not righteous at all. So it was a, a grand gift from God to begin to think, how do we restore this right understanding of the cosmos that's been completely wiped out by that decision. And I thank God that he put that burden on me and gave me a heart for that. But I haven't really pursued it by the law of faith. I've tried to pursue it first and foremost by organizing, connecting, uh, lobbying, explaining. And you know what? God hasn't directed the hearts of my colleagues and national organizations, nor even pastors, toward this effort. Now, I'm thankful that there are some friends who every Friday pray, and part of what they pray into is this effort. But I've not been as prayerful as I ought to be, nor has the church as a whole. Think about it. 
Where were you on the Sunday after June 26, 2015? Did your pastor even bring up the decision? Did your pastor call for a time of prayer and repentance that what have we done, O God, to allow the unrighteous to so succeed and to bring us under this severe discipline? What was the response of the church? It was mostly an initial burst of outrage, displeasure. God's judgment is coming. But essentially it was capitulation. Essentially it was capitulation. And that's what I saw in October of 2015. And so I think what we do in politics today is vacillate between capitulation on the most fundamental of issues for smaller issues, manageable issues, because we have no vision of anything bigger or pursuing righteousness by works of the law. And the law never imparts righteousness. Well, that's the episode for today. Thank you for joining me. I hope it's been a blessing. If it is, Would you consider sharing it with some of your friends that they might share in that blessing? And I look forward to seeing you again next week on God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.